Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Major League Baseball came out with a statement today, basically pushing back on the story that ESPN first published last night that Major League Baseball was considering all 30 teams playing in the state of Arizona with no fans as soon as the month of May. What do you guys think of this idea? There's been a lot of things discussed to get baseball back on the field, but a full season in Arizona with social distancing, that may be a little ambitious even for baseball. This plan seems irresponsible at best. I, I don't really understand how guys who, pitchers who lick the baseball, throw it to me as the catcher, and then I'm supposed to touch it and throw it back, um, how that's safe. I understand they're going to try to do testing and try to keep the, you know, the, the virus out of the, the clubhouse every way possible, but there's no way to do that 100%. So I'm just having a hard time understanding this. He said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to play in Japan. The Japanese <laughs> league is going to get through this faster than America's going to get through it. The Japanese league's going to play at night, and the major leagues are going to play during the day in Japanese stadiums, and that's how we're going to get this thing started. I couldn't even report it. It was so ridiculous. And yet, in the end, I think something ridiculous is how we're going to play the season. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 12th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
pretty much any podcasting service you desire. If you want to send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Happy Easter and Passover, whatever you uh, celebrate. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody's healthy. Hope everybody's safe. I hope you're employed. Uh, we, we forget to ask people that because with the rate of unemployment here, I think we forget that uh, there might be something else that'll kill us here if the virus doesn't. But let's not talk about the negative. Let's try to talk a little baseball here. And you just heard a couple of clips, uh, and we'll get into these two wild proposals that Major League Baseball potentially is thinking about to get the 2020 season started. We talked to Maury Brown of Forbes last week. And one of my concerns was, is baseball going to try to jam this in and jam it into a season? And he didn't think so. And and he had a more balanced view on what the season may be and when it may start later on in the year. And all these rumors have put the exact opposite. So we'll get into that. And then uh, I have a, a fun segment. Through all this, I know it's the Talking Mets podcast, but there's really not a lot of Mets talk to really get into and to debate the roster and the team and... Noah Syndergaard's injury, it, it just, I mean, what can you do? I mean, you're really on pause, literally. So we're trying to do some fun features, and I thought uh, this new book, and there's always a lot of books that come out in the month of April when the baseball season starts. The uh, the Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. It's by Brad Baluchian, and Brad took a pack of 1986 Tops baseball cards, ripped it open, chewed the gum, God help him, let's see if he survived that, and uh, wound up trying to track down the 14 players that were in that pack. And, not to give it away, there is a Mets connection. A very large Mets connection, actually. So, you'll hear uh, more about that in just a little bit. I had a chance to catch up with Brad earlier this week and uh, talk to him about uh, the Wax Pack. You can check it out, waxpackbook.com, at waxpackbook on Twitter. So, let's just start out with what we initially talked about here and... It's about, and this is what this podcast has really become over the last couple of weeks, is what can we expect the 2020 baseball season to be? Because I think all of us who are the hardcore baseball fans, we're trying to figure it out because we want baseball back. We want it back as normal as possible. And I think right now there's a lot of stuff that's being talked about. And no matter what business or industry you're in right now, when you're talking about the future and what you need to do to survive and thrive post-pandemic, there's no crazy ideas anymore. You're throwing things up against the wall and saying, what about this? What about that? Because there's a lot of brainstorming. And I think especially with sports, because of the time that it pushed all these leagues into where the NBA and the NHL are have been, their whole playoff season has been destroyed and it has impacts going into next season, whether you want to bring that back. Baseball, it's a little different. You want to see if you can get a season and, and save a season and not lose a full year. And then, of course, the NFL, you know, everything always shines down on the NFL. God, hopefully we're back to some normalcy by September. They may not have any impact other than maybe the fact that the NFL draft is virtual and things like that. So um, no idea is crazy. And I think that's what you're hearing right now when you hear reports. I think things are being leaked out because people are in these rooms, they're talking, and they're leaking things. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're leaking things to try to get uh, the temperature of the public about how they would feel about certain situations. First and foremost, America has to get back to work and normalize before we think about sports. I I really believe sports 
not I believe, I know, sports is a luxury. It's a $10 billion business, the, the, the MLB, and billions and billions in the NFL and the NBA and the NHL. But that is a luxury. It's a fact that we have this great society, all this disposable income, and we can not only watch sport and get so into it like it's life and death, but we could pay these guys where they never have to work again another day in their life, some of them, after they retire. If you're staring at, right now you have, what, 17 million people unemployed? There's reports of 30 to 37% unemployment. You have these daily White House briefings that'll depress the hell out of you. And by the way, I bring back Mickey Calloway's press conferences between the the, the, the White House reporters and the back and forth. I, I actually like, I, I appreciate the beat writers more. You've got... 50 states doing whatever they think is right. You got politics being thrown on this, the general fear-mongering that's going on, the media, of course, doing their part on that. This is all dominating people's lives. And the narrative I think you're hearing is baseball, despite, you know, is going to help save this. It's going to bring people back. And there's really no quick answer here. There's no shortcut. There's no easy pass lane to getting back. Things were ramped down little by little, and they have to be ramped up little by little. And right now it's about, as you all know, you may be working it, you may be living it. It's the essential stuff, the food, the health care, the trucking, getting from A to B so that we can survive while we basically sit in our houses, maybe do a little bit of exercise, trying to get this thing stemmed off and stopped so that you don't need to worry about it at the level that we're worrying about it now. But it's going to be around for a while. And Baseball isn't going to help that. Just watching a baseball game with all this other stuff, with people stuck in their house, I personally don't think, I know it would bring entertainment and it would get you off of Netflix and get you away from the White House briefings and all the other negativity that the media is throwing at you, but I don't think that you can really get the full value out of that until the until America starts to creep back to some normalcy, so small businesses reopen, so some of the other non-essential businesses, which, I mean, geez, is anybody going to get a haircut anytime soon become become open? So uh, the best case scenario is that I think you're looking at, and it was funny, we all laughed at Angel Hernandez when he said see in June, and I felt like May, June probably was realistic about two, three weeks ago. Now I feel July 1st and 4th of July is where your target is. And and am I being optimistic on that? I, I don't know. I mean, early summer, that's basically early summer at that point. You have the doomsday people that say, oh, we got to be in the house 12 to 18 months. I, I just don't know how you're going to do that. Now, maybe sports gets canceled for a full calendar year. That's possible. And, you know, gatherings and things like that, those could certainly be off the table till a vaccine is made. I hope not. I think there's other ways that we can get through this. I also think that as time goes on, human beings, we become, and I don't want to really get into areas because I criticize radio hosts that, you know, areas that we don't know about, human beings become immune to some things and like everything, it all passes. But the real question is, at what point does any of the things that you heard earlier make sense? So just to put it on the table, you have the Arizona plan where everybody's in Arizona, you put the players in the stands six feet apart from each other. Uh, you have the automated strike zone, seven-inning doubleheaders, uh, mainly every other day or every day. You try some of the things, universal DH. You know, who else knows what's going to be part of this? Are they not going to hold runners on? You can't steal bases? Uh, no mound visits? There's all these things that kind of 
not kind of, are exactly what I don't want them to do, which is shove the season down our throats just to have a season. And that Arizona plan, with the way they construe it, even bringing a Grapefruit League and a Cactus League league, that to me is, that's a test tube, which may be something that would be valuable, but I think it takes away the integrity of what the sport has been for well over 100 years. I also think it's giving us something that we're better off watching MLB The Show or Stratomatic during this time than than a bastardized version of baseball. Um, financially, we always know it'll make sense. The Japan thing, well, I'll get to the financial thing because maybe it doesn't. The Japan thing is interesting because at least maybe you'll get a more normalized baseball. I don't know why other than the fact Japan's population is half that of the United States, why they would think that Japan would be in a better place than us. They've already delayed their season again. So if Japan is going to be in July and the United States is going to be July, I mean, why send everybody over? Unless you feel there's better mitigation tactics there, uh, you want to promote the sport globally, that might be a very important marketing piece. The Japan thing doesn't bother me so much because it doesn't disrupt, like the Arizona plan, your East Coast or your normal uh, way of looking at things. I mean, at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock time here, it's the morning, which is when the MLB teams will play, and then the Japanese teams will play at their normal time. It's the morning over there. So players will have to make the adjustment at playing at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. And that might be interesting. But players are creatures of habit, and if you get them in a routine, they'll struggle at the beginning, and eventually they'll they'll somehow adapt and adjust. Their lives are going to take a change. Their nightlife habits are going to take a change. All those things. What is at least positive to hear from the quotes, and there was an ESPN story with some of the players that anonymously, all of them anonymous, anonymously spoke to ESPN, those that have families all universally, whether they're an all-star pitcher or player to all the way down to a, a middle innings reliever, they all, if they have families, say, how is this going to work? I'm going to be away from my family. I'm going to be quarantined. I'm obviously going to be out there and be at huge risks. Hey, listen, welcome to the world of truck drivers and grocery store workers. Um, is there going to be testing and all these other things? And then you have the young players who just want to get a paycheck. I understand that and play video games because that's their life. They're basically kids in college, some of them. I mean, it's 20, 21, 22, 23-year-old people. These are like kids coming out of college. Think of yourself during that time. So I think the majority of the players will not go for either of these type of situations. I think the players want a situation where we could get a season as long as makes sense that's not bastardized, where the world is as normal as it will be with obviously controls and restrictions Maybe we're all going to have to wear masks. Maybe there's only so many people that will be allowed in the ballpark. Uh, who knows what else they'll do. I, I mean, I don't support putting players out of the dugout in the stands. I mean, if you're in a clubhouse and if you're traveling and if you're you know on the base pads with the team, with the, with the team, you're already at risk. I mean, this idea that just hanging out together too close is going to make anything different. It's just, it's dumb. It's taking social distancing and all these things to a level where it's all for show just to get the league started. And it doesn't help one iota. It doesn't help one iota. How will a season look if you start? Let's forget about the Japan thing and the Arizona thing. The only thing that makes sense to me is normal baseball in Japan 
and 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 the Arizona plan to me is just is just garbage. To me, it's total garbage. Uh, I would rather do that if it's normal baseball and you could have some semblance of normalcy, even if there's no fans, players in the dugout, regular game, regular umpires, things like that. But at what point? And I think 81 games is that number. If you can't get a season that's at least 81 games plus postseason, then that to me is a bastardization of 1981. And and, and even, I mean, real bastardization, 81, 95, it doesn't even fit in the middle at that point if it's less than 81. If you do 81, you're somewhere in between. I mean, a season like that will make 1994 look more legitimate. And there was no World Series or champion in 1994. Like I said before, financially, whatever season they put out, you'll get people to watch, you'll get some media covering it, even if it's from a remote perspective, they'll make some of the money back. Players' health and injury perspective, forget about just from COVID perspective, injuries with pitchers and players trying to ramp up quickly, then having their routine, with which maybe in Japan is a morning routine, changed. You're going to have so many things that are at risk, why would you as a team or a league want to lose potentially star players the following year when hopefully things are normal, and I believe they will be, star player to Tommy John or to some career-ending injury because you shoved the baseball season in just to shove a baseball season in? And then you look at the historical perspective. How does this even look in the eyes of the game over the context? The future of the game, do you just, I mean, this will look like a carnival at some point. It really will. It'll be a carnival. Nobody will take it seriously. Nobody will pay attention to it. I mean, it might be fun to talk about down the road and write books and look back and when everything's normal, laugh a little bit if you can and say, remember that craziness? But you just can't, you just, you just, you just can't take it any, anywhere seriously. And I know what people are saying. Oh, the players are going to lose money. The league is going to lose money. Well, ask Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and Bob Feller, go to their baseball reference pages they lost three years to World War II. DiMaggio and Williams lost a shot at uh, DiMaggio, 400 home runs. Ted Williams, 600 home runs. Both lost shots at 3,000 hits. Bob Feller lost a shot at 300 wins. The, and look at their ages, early prime to in prime. We're not talking 30 plus where their careers are towards the end. They lost right smack in the middle, years that you'll never get back at that age. And they were going into combat. Ask the guys in the 60s who had to go. Now, they may not have went to Vietnam, those guys, but they were in the reserve, and they would get pulled away from their teams for, what, a week or two? They didn't care it was a pennant race. Oh, Mets are playing the Cubs this weekend? Eh, Buddy Harrelson, you got to go and and do your service. That's what the world was during that time. And I keep telling people, the worst thing that happens to this league and to this sport is they lose a season to a pandemic, and you have to take a step back, and you have to maybe appreciate the game a little more, and players, there'll be players that lose. Pete Alonso loses a season in his early prime. DeGrom loses a season in his late prime. Uh, there's no way around it. Players, Mark Reynolds retired earlier in the month. You know what? There's going to be players that are just going to say, I'm done. They were on a one-year or a minor league deal. Maybe the Matt Adams is over the world and say, you know, I'm done. I, I'm just not going to ramp this back up. Time for me to go home, be with my family. Life is more important. And they're done. So you're going to see things that are consequences of what happens from losing a season. It happened with the lockout in 1990. It happened with the strike in 94. Players don't always come back. 
You lose opportunities. 94 robbed the fans of the Montreal Expos and the Yankees World Series. Yankee fans remember that very well. Maybe Tony Gwynn hits 400. Maybe Matt Williams breaks Roger Maris's record that year. And even though McGuire does what he does, you know, we don't even have this debate about who the all-time home run champion is. Maybe Matt Williams is that. There's a lot of things that could happen after that. Well, we lost that, and we're going to lose that if we don't play a season. But you can't start this thing half, half cocked. You have to be able to have a somewhat normal season. Anything less than 81 games is a waste of time. And if the country is still largely in a shutdown, because I think the country will not reopen altogether, it's going to be state by state. And areas like New York, L.A., Chicago, the Northeast, if they're under lockdown and have, and they will have, severe levels of uh, economic strain for many years to come over this, those are, for lack of a better word, because I know that's the wrong word to use during a pandemic, hotbeds of baseball. What's the point? Entertainment for the public, their lives are so upended that any further abnormal, I think, is almost depressing, at least to me. You can't force this. You have to wait till this thing plays out. You have to let this. This is a waiting game. This is requires things that most fans, people in this country, citizens of this country, politicians, owners, whatever, don't usually have a large supply of, and it's patience. And until the country gets back to work, and that's the blue-collar, white-collar, small business, all the way up to Fortune 500, as they trickle back to work, that's when you could start talking about sports. Till then, this is all mental bubblegum. And quite honestly, some of it's really stupid bubblegum. Home run derbies to decide games. Come on. I don't even want to get into it. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Brad Bluchian, author of the book The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. He took a 1986 Topps pack of baseball cards, chewed the gum, Flipped through it, 14 players, and he tried to track down these retired players. Huge Mets connection. You'll hear about this and more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. I'm joined by Brad Baluchian. He is the author of a new book coming out this April, The Wax Pack, On the Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. You can check out Brad at his website, waxpackbook.com, and also on Twitter, at waxpackbook. And he's joining me now. Brad, welcome to the program. And here's how I'll start. Uh... Five years ago, you go on this, you open up this pack of baseball cards. I'm very familiar with it, the 1986 Tops. You get this crazy idea to go follow these guys around the country and go catch up with them, look at them at what they're at after their baseball career. You blog about it a little bit, you get a book put together, and then you release it in the middle of all this craziness. You could not have scripted this project <laughs> any better. So, welcome to the program. And um, I'm happy that it finally came together. And I'm happy I had a chance to talk. So, are you taking a step back now and going, wow, I could not have planned this, any any crazier type of plan? 
Well, I think up until that last part, I would say you're right. Um, you know, right now with the, with the pandemic, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's ideal because, you know, I had like a 40 stop book tour plan and that's canceled. Um, you know, and it's a little bit awkward to be promoting a book in the middle of, of such a devastating crisis. But uh, but, you know, um, there's nothing I can do about about when it was released. So doing the best I can. You get this pack of baseball cards and I'm guessing when you opened it up, was, was that your plan to, to really start to dive into these guys? Like talk about that because that's, that's unique. It's a, it, it was a very interesting collection as well. You could, you actually got very lucky, I think also with who popped up in that pack of cards. Well, a couple of things. So the, the idea came first. Um, I had, I was thinking back, you know, six years ago, I had this, this moment of inspiration where I thought, you know, it would be like, I wanted to know what happened to the guys that I grew up collecting in the 1980s. Um, I was six years old in 1986. That was the first year that I remember collecting baseball cards. And so I thought the, the, the beauty of the pack, uh, the, the wax pack is that you're going to get a random sample of guys. And I thought that was just a really neat, um, you know, device to write a book. Uh, and the pack itself kind of looks like a book, 15 cards in a, uh, 15 cards in a pack, 15 chapters in a book. So um, as I said in one of the footnotes in the book, I actually opened up multiple packs. Um, I didn't switch players between packs, but I knew if I opened up just a single pack and let's say several of the guys had passed away or they all lived in Indiana, now that wouldn't make for a very good road trip book. So I picked the pack that had uh, guys that were almost all alive and that were kind of spread out around the country. So some luck and then some also, you know, some design in terms of that. For those listening, the uh, collection is Al Cowens, Carlton Fisk, Don Carmen, Doc Gooden. Of course, we have a Mets connection here on this program. Gary Templeton, kind of a Mets connection. Gary Pettis, uh, Jamie Kockenauer, Lee Mazzilli, Rance Mullenix, Randy Reddy, Richie Hebner, Rick Sutcliffe, Steve Yeager, and Vince Coleman, also of uh, a Mets connection. Uh, what's interesting to me before you get even into the baseball part of it is actually a, over 11,000 miles traveled, almost four times back and forth to from New York to California, if you want to look at it that way. Seeing the country, you were in various different places. The most I've ever done is New York, Long Island, down to Port St. Lucie for spring training in the car. Uh, give me that because that must have been a fun part. I know you you catalog all the cups of coffee. I'm a big coffee drinker too. Um, different uh, brews, I'm sure, throughout the country. So, what about the uh, experience of just getting to see the United States? Yeah, very much. This is very much a road trip book. You know, I had uh, was really flattered that the author of another really good book called uh, Cardboard Gods, Josh Wilker, called it uh, a, a, ver- like a baseball version of Almost Famous you know, the, the, the music, uh, music story. So I, you know, I think to me that was part of the, of the charm and the fun was getting to get out there on the road and, and see all these places. I mean, I go everywhere from Compton, California, you know, to Camargo, Oklahoma, you know, from really, really urban populated areas to these really tiny little towns in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and I just, and I talk about that as I go and, you know, to me, you get a, you get a nice, slice of america when you when you do that you also and i've for this show i've tracked down some former players i remember when i started about 13 14 years ago it was a little harder back then the internet was around but wasn't as easy maybe people didn't have their own websites but 
I've always told people that ask me about it, it's, it's part detective, a lot of cold calling. Got to be kind of a salesperson too. There's some anxiety. You get to some. You have a couple of you know interesting interactions as you go along the way. We'll get to a couple of them. But it, it was this comfortable for you, kind of reaching out, basically saying, "Hey, I'm looking to do this." It's it's not a traditional project. You're not looking to interview them for a sports show or to talk about their career. It's it's a little bit different. And I'm wondering your experience actually trying to get these guys on the phone. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I talk in the book about how. I was, when I was a kid, I was really shy and I got picked on. And, you know, I think the reason why I liked my favorite baseball players were the underdog types were because I identified as an underdog myself. And so by nature, as a kid, I was not someone that was very confident. And my mom, grateful to her, always told me, you know, Brad, no one's ever going to come to you. You have to go to them and push yourself. And, you know, even if you don't feel confident, and I, I, you know, always taking that advice that, you know, even if you, it makes you nervous or you're anxious, you have to just push yourself out of your comfort zone. And so that's what I had to do when calling these guys. And as you were saying, a lot of it is just cold calling and trying to explain the idea to them and get them to agree. Um, and for the most part, I'm really grateful that most of the guys were very generous and, and uh, you know, they may not have quite understood what I was doing until I was right in front of them and could explain in more detail. But, um, but they were pretty, pretty gracious about it. I also wonder, and I've thought about this, that the era that you picked now, the players, as you get to the mid nineties to today, a lot more money, stupid money. These guys got paid well, but you, and you'll, you'll see that for those who are, who are listening when you read the book, some of them are just doing regular jobs like you, like me, they're not independently wealthy. Um, not all of them were stars, and even the stars, as like a Doc Gooden, have obviously fallen on hard times. Um, do you think that era helped you connect with them? Because I feel like there's different eras of players, and some are more approachable than others as you get more and more into the modern era of the game. Yeah, that's a good point. I think this is probably the last era of guys that didn't make the FU kind of money. You know, that they were they were still having to do other things when they retired. Um, and I think now, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about this. If you were to do a, a book like this 30 years from now with today's players, how it would be different. And I don't know. I mean, nowadays, all these guys, they all have, even the guys that are not stars, right. They kind of have their social media. They have like an entourage. They have a, uh, a website. They have, you know, they make pretty good money or really good money. I don't know. Maybe that some of that ego is bigger now, even for the guys that were not the the stars. What was your favorite interaction? Without giving, I know you want people to read the book. I know that they, you don't want to give everything away. But what was your personal, for whatever reason, favorite interaction? I, it has to be uh, Don Carmen. Um, I grew up in Rhode Island as a Phillies fan. Uh, apologies to the Mets. You know, we were big rivals <laughs> back in the in the eighties. Um, although we were terrible and Phillies were, you know, awful in those years that I grew up with. And Don Carmen was one of their pitchers and, and was my favorite player. So getting to meet him now in Florida, um, was, was just amazing to get to, you know, actually sit down with your, with your childhood hero. But not only that, it was also, um, it was a little bit surreal because I wasn't just doing a meet and greet with my hero. I was now in the role of pressing him with hard questions, you know, and that's kind of an uncomfortable spot. I mean, I'm, I knew 
after having visited with his his mom and his brothers in Oklahoma a couple days prior, I knew there were certain things in his story, in his backstory, that might make him uncomfortable that I was going to ask about, like his relationship with his father. So here I am, like, on the one hand, you you know, you're starstruck and you want your hero to like you. On the other hand, I'm, I'm playing uh, in the role of sort of investigative journalist about to ask him questions that could make him really upset. So that's kind of a strange paradox of emotion. Joining me is Brad Baluchian. He's author of the book, The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. Great book. Had a chance to open up a pack of baseball cards from uh, 1986 and uh, track down, almost track down everybody. I had uh, doing this, and I've been doing this for about 15 years, I had a couple of surreal moments early on. One was when I get a chance, and I was growing up as a Mets fan, interviewing guys like the late Gary Carter, Dell Strawberry, being in their presence, thinking about how it wasn't that long ago that I was watching these guys on TV. But I also remember interviewing Ernie Harwell, the late Ernie Harwell broadcaster. And here I am talking to this guy, and I'm saying, wow, this guy interviewed Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb, and this is almost like cartoon comic book stuff. You don't; Those are real figures, but they don't seem real. Did you at any point as you're traveling across the country get in front of these guys, have any kind of similar surreal moment where you had to like pinch yourself and go, well, I remember – maybe it's Carmen who you just talked about. I remember being a kid, seeing this person on TV or – hearing this person on the radio and, you know, now I'm in their presence in this normal ish type of environment. Yeah. Even the guys that were not my, my favorites. I mean, Rance Mullenix, the first guy on the trip, who was a, often a utility guy, platoon guy for the blue Jays. Uh, I, even then I had that feeling it's a, you know, a good way to describe it. That kind of, they're almost like these cartoon figures because even if he wasn't a star in my six year old brain, he was, you know, I, he had a baseball card. If you have a baseball card, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're a star in some way in life. Right. So, um, to have spent so much time in their presence as baseball cards, now that they're brought to life, that was, uh, that was very much that kind of moment. Uh, maybe this is not a question you want, but what was your most disappointing or least favorite? I mean, is anybody that you went in really excited to meet came away less than uh, impressed or, or very disappointed? I know you struck out on a couple of occasions trying to find people. Would you like to share that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I would say Vince Coleman is probably the biggest villain in the book, um, which I think makes the book better. You know, I think if everyone was cooperative and nice and friendly wouldn't be as interesting a book because, you know, in order for, I mean, this book is very much a narrative. It's not just like 15 sections that you drop in and out of. It's meant to be read from beginning to end in sequence. And, um, and in order for, you know, it's a story. I mean, I look at my role as a storyteller and any story needs to have, you know, good guys and bad guys, conflict, dramatic tension. And so by not having all these guys work with me, it actually, I think, makes it a better story. Yeah, and Coleman's an interesting one because he's a guy that's fallen off the map. Uh, yeah, he, he was with the Mariners on that magical run in 95, but after his Mets days, you didn't really hear much about him. He was a very popular player, maybe because I'm looking at it from an NL East Mets-Cardinals rivalry perspective, but as I'm reading the book, and I'm sure you got this, you know, having all the advanced metrics now, all the ways to measure players today and past, Coleman's one of those guys, and you even pointed out in the book, he wasn't all that good. He was a valuable player maybe for that team and maybe a synopsis of that era. Uh, he, he was not as good as he thought he was, clearly. But looking back, 
really not the kind of player today. He's, uh, you know, Billy Hamilton, and Billy Hamilton is, not, is certainly a backup. Uh, it's interesting when you look back now, 30-somewhat years later, what we thought about these guys, and Coleman's a good synopsis of it, and what we think of them as players now, much different. Exactly. And, you know, I don't think Mets fans are, are particularly fond of Vince Coleman because, you know, what, what he did when he came to New York was just a, a succession of, of miscues and mistakes and, you know, wasted money. I mean, his, his, you know, his days, his biggest days were in, in St. Louis. Um, and he had just had all kinds of problems in New York. Doc Gooden is another, and it's funny how he's, I mean, that was the 86 set. So you're coming off the 85 historic season. So you, you get lucky enough. He's in that pack and, and, and that's the pack you wind up picking. You don't get a chance to catch up with doc, but you do get a chance to sit down with, with doc's son. What can you share with the listeners? Um, you know, taking away, going in what you thought about doc, you know, you know, watching him during those years when he was this, probably, the, you know, many consider the best pitcher in baseball. And I took away a certain amount of sadness. Now, being in New York, I'm not surprised that I'm familiar with the, you know, doc to a certain degree and what's going on. But uh, as reading your piece, I just, it would really put in perspective how far the mighty have fallen. Yeah. I mean, with, with doc, it was like when I first opened up the pack and saw him, I was like, I was actually kind of disappointed, <laughs> even though he's a star player. I thought, how do you write something different about Dwight Gooden? I mean, he's written three autobiographies. Um, and so I thought that my solution was to go a new route and write about his oldest son, Dwight Gooden Jr., Little Doc, who has not really been written about very much. And I thought it worked really well. I think if you really read that chapter carefully and what Little Doc says, it tells you everything you need to know about what, you know, the story of, of his father, Doc Gooden. One of the stories, not just because it's a Mets story, hits home for me growing up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Bensonhurst, but I'm very familiar with Sheepshead Bay, where you spent some time with your dad, uh, getting a feel of Lee Mazzilli and his upbringing. Lee Mazzilli, uh, right. a player that, if you look at Lee Mazzilli, you look at his numbers from the late 70s when he first came up. Guy who got on base, very patient hitter, had speed, had power. Power compared by that standard during that era. A star, a guy that when he really become known for Mets fans, at least at least contemporary ones at my age, they know him, of him more as a pinch hitter. Underrated player, and actually your interaction there was a little bit different than I expected because Mazzilli was always a guy they described as this big star into himself, John Travolta. He was angry when he was traded from the Mets to the Rangers because they only got Ron Darling and Walt Terrell. So the, the interaction to me was a lot different than what I would have expected. And for me personally, it was cool because I'm from Brooklyn and, and obviously grew up a Mets fan and Mazzilli's from that area. So it hit home. Yeah, I think, I mean, and Mazzilli's a, a good counterweight to Gooden, you know, in terms of his relationship with his father and his son and his brother who passed away. Um, and I think, you know, sort of like what you describe as sort of the being surprised by how he was is also kind of with Gary Templeton, who is often thought of as being kind of moody and difficult, but was an absolute delight to when I met with him. I think a lot of these guys, um, when they, when they actually sat down with me and maybe they saw that I, I was not in the role of sports journalist looking for a headline or you know, I, w I was not going to be sensationalistic and that I was more interested in them as people. 
perhaps that allowed them to relax a little bit and, and let their guard down a little bit. Um, because I was interested in more their, their personal stories, their personal lives, not their lives as athletes per se. And I was really impressed by how vulnerable and open they were willing to be. I mean, it became a, an ongoing theme on the trip of how many of these guys were, you know, would get teary eyed talking about different things. So, um, I, I really think that comes through. And one of the main points of the book is really that we all have a lot more in common with these guys than we ever realized that, you know, they deal with the same issues that we deal with. And, you know, it kind of demystifies some of that, that hero worship, which I think is a, is a good thing for fans to not put these guys too high on a pedestal, but to actually feel some kind of kinship with them. Uh, you know, and it's funny you said that because that's the takeaway I've had. And I've learned so much about the game through doing this and through meeting players and getting personal with a couple of players. And like you said, they, they go through job security stresses and family issues. And I know that fans don't like hearing this. This is a job for them. Not that they don't like the team or they don't like performing right. for the fans, but at the end, you want to get your 10 years right. and you want to get your pension. And that's the takeaway. I, I don't be, I think you, if people saw these guys like you did, I think they wouldn't begrudge that as much as I think they were listening. Well, to I think, this. I think this book is actually as much about the reader as it is about the player. In other words, if you really read this book and you, and you look, it, 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 if you if you take the lessons from the book, it forces you to look at yourself as a, as a person, as a reader, and to you know to become to be honest with yourself. You know how how are you living your life? How are you treating people? How are you viewing these these athletes? Um, and I think um, you know it's it's great to have you know baseball is a wonderful diversion. It's wonderful entertainment, but. It's also a reminder, you know, don't don't take the game too seriously, right? Just like Jaime Kokenauer's wife, Ginny, says, and, you know, I have a quote that leads off each chapter. And her quote is, you know, it's just a game, right? And I think sometimes as fans, you know, we get so wrapped up in, in, the, in this thing. And it's like, it, it's a beautiful thing, but it's, it's just one part of, of life. And I think it's, so again, I think, you know, for this book is really, as much about the the person reading it as the people who are written about. Do you enjoy the game more now that you've had this experience? Um, you know, do you, do you have a different appreciation for the players today? Does it change at all good or bad your uh, enjoyment of baseball? It's, it's not changed it. I mean, I've always loved the game. I still love it the same way uh, or the, the same to the same degree. Um, I think, it just makes me like, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of, I have my favorite teams, the Phillies, I like the Oakland A's, but really I'm a, I'm a fan of a good story of a good, of, of the, the, you know, the human element of baseball. When you see someone, no matter who, what team they play for, if I see a guy playing for a team, that's not my favorite team and I see him overcome a great adversity. I like that. Right. It's not about like, you know, the you know cheering or cheering only your team and booing the other team it's about seeing these stories of of accomplishment and and overcoming adversity and and to me those are you know those are the themes that make sports great the individual stories of guys um and and what they accomplish so listening to you and I'll ask you this last thing before we wrap up 
did you get everything you wanted going into this? Now that you now five years later, you've now had the book published. Uh, did you feel you fulfilled everything you could have, or was it? I'm sure it's way different than you would have expected five years ago. What What is your personal takeaway coming out of this? Have Have you accomplished what you expected to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exceeded my expectation. You know, I went into this on on the road trip. I didn't have a book deal. I didn't have an advance. I had to fund everything out of my own pocket. You know, I didn't know if it was going to work out, if I would even get to write a book. So it's been enormously satisfying to to see it all the way through to, to completion. And now I'm just I'm kind of sitting back and enjoying the interaction with people on Twitter and readers as they tell me what they like or what they don't like. Um, so I, yeah, it's 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 exceeded whatever I, I could have hoped for. Give me a city that somebody should go visit that you never would have thought of. I, I got to ask you this before I wrap up. I know you got to go, but give me a city or a town or something that uh, you never would have thought of going to that you would highly recommend somebody listening ch- take a ch- check it out if they can. Some a place that I went on the trip. Yeah, um, the trip, I would yeah. say I would say the Negro League uh, baseball museum. In, uh, in the Kansas City area, uh, wasn't on my itinerary. Uh, but I met with when I met with Rick Sutcliffe. He said, "Oh, you got to go to the, the Negro League. You have to go like right now." And he picked up his phone and he called Bob Kendrick, who's president of the museum, and he said, "Hey, I'm going to send Brad down. Can you show him around?" And it was, you know, I, I just knew the very basics of the Negro League story, but I didn't know, you know, in depth. And that place will will give you new appreciation for, for, for the people that played in the league, for, you know, the, the damage that was caused by, by all the, you know, the racial issues. Um, and it was so, it was so impressive that on my book tour, which I'll hopefully get to still do at some point, I'm definitely going to make a point to go do an appearance there. Very cool. Uh, at wax pack book on Twitter, waxpackbook.com's website. So Brad, the tour is on hold. Hopefully the world gets back to normal sooner rather than later. I'm sure it will. Uh, other than the tour to be determined, is there anything else you got going on? Any appearances you want to promote? Obviously the Twitter and the website. What else that you have coming up in the near future that you'd like the listeners to know about? Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Just if you can go to waxpackbook.com. Um, also, if you go there, you'll see um, a bunch of baseball writers. We formed the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, which is pbbclub.com so basically any baseball writers that have books coming out now that are being affected by this um, pandemic we're all coming together to help each other doing a podcast a series of interviews with each other and trying to drive people to if they're going to order our books to get them through um, independent bookstores Uh, there's a site called bookshop.org where you can order books and that way you know a lot of these bookstores are really getting creamed right now by by this, the effects of the pandemic. So I encourage people to, uh, if they're going to order, to order that way. Absolutely. Brad, it's an interesting book. Uh, Brad Baluchian, uh, the Wax Pack book. Uh, let's keep in touch. Good work and uh, good luck. Hopefully you get back on the road with your tour soon and then let's catch up soon. All right. I'd love to, and I was going to, of course, come through New York. So if it gets, if it happens and I'm back out there, I'd love to meet up, Mike. Absolutely, Brad. We'll we'll take you up on that offer and we'll talk more. Be well, have a great weekend, and thanks again. All right, thank you. That's Brad Baluchian.
The book is The Wax Pack on uh, the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife at Wax Pack Book, waxpackbook.com, uh, the website. Interesting, has Mets connections, like I said, Doc Good and Vince Coleman, Lee Mazzilli, even Gary Templeton uh, was a Met for about a cup of coffee for half a season. So you get a real interesting take on some players from the 80s, an era that I grew up starting to watch baseball, so holds some personal affinity for me and my first like i said earlier my first uh baseball card was uh the baseball card season was 1987 which was the wood border you guys probably some of you in the audience remember that not 86 87 so i'm a year after brad that i got into the game but this does bring back uh, some memories because i did actually collect this set as well all right let's take a quick break we'll be back with more right after this we like to look back at Mets history on the Talking Mets podcast. Like, why was Davey Johnson the perfect manager for the Mets during their 1980s renaissance? Eric Sherman, author of Davey Johnson's book, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond, tells us. And then he um, went into the Mets organization and worked his way up and uh, really got to know the minor league system and what the Mets had very, very well. Um, you know, and he was managing... Doc, when he was just a kid, you know, like 17 years old, uh, you know, he managed Daryl Strawberry, of course. And, uh, I mean, Davey really knew what the heck the Mets had in that minor league system. Uh, Lenny Dykstra was another one, and Wally Backman, who wasn't the most talented second baseman, but he just loved the way that he played. So, really, he knew what they had, and so by the time he came up to manage in 84, he was the perfect pilot for that ball club. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he brought up Dwight Gooden a year before Frank Frank Cashin wanted him up. And, you know, his relationship with Frank is a whole other thing, which he really gets into in the book. I mean, Mets fans will devour that. Um, that very odd relationship he had with Frank. <laughs> Let's just say that for now. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Great stuff at Wax Pack Book, waxpackbook.com. Brad Baluchian. There's only so much Netflix and old videos of games and things you can do. Obviously, I hope you're spending time with your family because that's what this is all about right now, getting connected more than ever with people we're close to and love. But uh, if you have a chance to read a good book, I think this is an interesting book. Uh, Brad has some really interesting stories, experiences that he had while he's on this trip, brought some memories home close to me when he went back to Brooklyn and Sheepshead Bay to see where Lee Mazzilli grew up. I'm from Bensonhurst, but I know Sheepshead Bay very well. Much different area of Bensonhurst and Sheepshead Bay now than it was then. Uh, other th- areas where he was trying to track down Vince Coleman, and it's a very d- sad experience tracking down Doc Gooden and talking one of Doc's uh, sons. And very sad when you read that. Uh, really illuminates. This is five years ago when he was doing this. So it was 2015. It illuminates why Doc, unfortunately, has had some issues since then. But what really came back to me as I was talking to him and also reading the book was these players like Mazzilli, Coleman, and Gooden specifically and how I viewed them as a kid. Even these guys like Randy Reddy and Gary Templeton, uh, Rance Mullenix, Don Carmen. These are all names that I remember when I first started watching baseball. So it floods back so many memories to 
that time. And I was looking at specifically Coleman, Gooden, and Mazzilli because I wanted to see in retrospect what kind of players they were. And Mazzilli was a guy, he had it all, power from that standpoint in the late 70s, speed, on-base percentage, a really good player. So maybe he's a player early in his career that had hype because he was a matinee guy and a first-round pick, and he was in the All-Star game and had a big hit in the All-Star game, but he was a really good player, a component player, not a star, but a really good player. And in some ways, maybe Brandon Nimmo comes to mind. I don't know if that's totally fair, but Brandon Nimmo, because the on-base percentage, the kind of power he has, the speed. So maybe there's a guy that's a little underappreciated, and then he comes back to the Mets as a bench player, and he's a very valuable pinch hitter and a big part of those teams in the late 80s, especially the championship team as he came midseason in that role. So Mazzilli might have been in some ways a bit of a disappointment when he winds up being a big figure in Mets history because he gets traded for Darling and Terrell, and then Terrell gets you Howard Johnson. So there's a lot of reasons why Mazzilli's valuable to the 86 and late 80s teams than just the the, the pinch hitting and coming off the bench. Coleman is interesting because when he was signed by the Mets, he was the response to losing Daryl Strawberry. So... The Mets then say, we're going to go away from power. We're going to go to more speed and manufacturing runs. But if you look at Coleman, if you really were looking at Coleman as he's a free agent, now he had a very good 1990 season. He was a below league average hitter. He really didn't get on base. He did have a couple of years where he had on base percentages about 350. Uh, he didn't really get on base a lot. He wasn't a good outfielder. He did not have a good arm, but you'll see all the assists. And I very vividly remember the reason for his assists because he had such a bad arm that people ran like crazy on him. So he had so many more opportunities to throw people out. And that's why that happened. But Coleman getting the four-year deal from the Mets and being anywhere near a replacement for Strawberry. Now, the Strawberry contract, I've talked to Daryl about this, and, and I think I even played the uh, clip earlier when we were doing throwbacks back in January. Daryl's career and life may have been different if he had re-signed with the Mets and not gone to L.A. And a lot of people I had a conversation with the late Frank Cashin back in 2010 when I went to the Mets Hall of Fame uh, for those guys' induction press conference, and I talked to Frank one-on-one. Maybe things are different, but who knows? Put that aside a minute, because Strawberry, that contract with the Dodgers was disastrous after 1991, so they really only got one good season out of him. Coleman being a replacement is laughable. And by today's standards, that would be a criticized contract. That would be a criticized move from a standpoint of you lose a Hall of Fame bat, a guy at that point who was destined for 500 home runs in the Hall of Fame, and you're replacing him with a below-league average leadoff hitter that doesn't really walk and has bad outfield defense and a bad arm. It would be laughed at. It really would. And looking back now, you can see that Mets team after 86, every year they chipped away. They replaced them with players who, by that standards during those times, Juan Samuel, Coleman, guys who they thought would bring energy and speed to the lineup because they were more of a power-hitting team and and, and what have you. And, and they weren't. They weren't good players. They were overrated players. Uh, so you look, you look at that a little bit. And then, of course, Doc, I've always said, and Davey Johnson got very angry at me during that same Hall of Fame press conference, if you look at Doc's usage earlier in his career, forget the drugs for a second, forget the off-the-field stuff. Doc pitched his second season in the big leagues. He pitched 276 innings, 250 and 86. And if you look back at the archive, and I had Bob Sykes, the former trainer, when we were talking to him uh, many times, and, and he admitted to that, even though it's technically it's a bit of a HIPAA violation maybe, that Doc had capsule issues in his shoulder. Capsule issues are serious. It's what Chris Young had. 
Tim Burdak had that. That's ended his career when he was here with the Mets. Look up pitchers who have capsule injuries. Kevin Elster had that too. Hurt Kevin Elster's career at shortstop. So you look at that and then you look at different... What this book did for me is two things. It's interesting read, but it brought back memories of players when I started watching baseball. So it brings back some memories of your childhood. Makes me think back to my old neighborhood by hearing his experience in Sheepshead Bay. And then I look at some of these players and how they turned out. And then you start to evaluate them by today's standards. And it gives more credence to how we look at the game. Now, we take it to a very crazy degree. But there is a lot of value to how we look at the game from a standpoint of the type of players, the players that have value versus the utilization of pitchers and and what have you. Lee Mazzilli is looked at in today's game in the late 70s as a much better and different player than he was back then. And Vince Coleman, who is viewed much better than he probably was, is looked at, he's Billy Hamilton. Let's face it, he might not even be a starter in today's game. He would never get a chance to steal 100 bases. And if you look at that career in St. Louis, he was gradually starting to decline with his stolen base totals. Because that does take, Jose Reyes talked about it, you know, stealing bases at a high level, the pounding going into second base. Uh, there is a toll it takes on a player. It does take its toll. It takes toll on your legs. It takes toll on your body. So there is a toll there. Um, so to me, that's what I got out of it. You probably will get something different out of it. Maybe there's a player in there that you like for some reason. Maybe not just a Mets player. Maybe somebody else that you admired when you were growing up uh, or what have you. But I think the road trip aspect is interesting. He gets to experience different parts of the country. To me, that's always fascinating because having grown up in New York, and I've spent some time in other parts of the country, but very, very little outside of the New York City metro area. Uh, large percentage of my life in, this, in, the, in, the, in the Brooklyn, Staten Island area. And then, of course, I've been on Long Island for... Oh, wow, 15 years now, so it's been a long time. But um, anyway, be that as it may, Wax Pack Book, Brad Baluchian at Wax Pack Book, at wax, uh, waxpackbook.com. Hope you enjoyed it. Well, and again, I hope everybody had a good Passover and a good Easter. Uh, we'll continue to try to bring you content every week. I'm working on some other fun things. Yeah, I'm also looking at some throwbacks. Every week I try to see what kind of news that is out there, though, that maybe we could have a Mets conversation. Right now, it's more about baseball, getting baseball back. That's the Mets conversation. That's the talking Mets connection because you want to see if there's going to be a 2020 Mets season. And like I said, I only want it if it makes sense and if it doesn't bastardize the game. If it's a bastardized season, let's just watch MLB The Show. I'm sorry these guys lost salary. I'm sorry they lost the season of their careers. Talk to the late Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, and Bob Feller. They had that too, and they had to go off to war, and there was a good chance they weren't going to come back. Look at those guys in the 60s that were in the reserve, lost days of service. Teams lost key players sometimes to days of service. It's not the first time it's happened in our country's history. Hopefully this will be the last for at least a long time, but sacrifices have to be made during times of national crisis, and sports is a luxury, and a luxury that right now we really can't focus on. All right, you can check out the show all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet. At Mike Silva Media, send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your holiday. We'll be back with another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast next week. Till then, be healthy, be safe, be well, everybody.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.